The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, turn with me in the New Testament in the book of Colossians. We're going to Colossians chapter 2. It's on page 984. If you've not already, do turn there with me. And we are in Colossians 2, specifically looking at verses 11 and 12. We are admittedly moving a bit slowly here in the middle of Colossians 2, and we'll even slow down even more next week. But uh, as, you're, as you're going there, or perhaps as you've located yourself there, let me, let me confess to you one of my biggest fears as a preacher. One of my biggest fears is that you will, either when sitting in the pew or when walking out of the church, or when sitting down for your lunch this afternoon, look to somebody else and say, I have no idea what he was on about up there. <laughs> Flap John around talking about what knows who and what knows what. I, I just am so terrified that you walk away going, not a clue, not a clue. So we, we really labor hard to keep you from doing that. At risk of my greatest fear, I want to tell you today that we are tackling the portion of Colossians that is the most difficult part of the letter. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 is the most complicated part of all the book of Colossians. And I admit that to you up front so that you will meet me with a bit of grace as we navigate this difficult portion of the letter. Now, God's word is not given to us to confuse us. It's given to us that we might be illuminated and understand and grow. But the Bible also says not every part of the Bible is equally as clear as other parts, such that sometimes you have to slow down and labor a bit. Not every path is paved and easy walking. Sometimes you get to put on your hiking shoes and trek a bit. So that's what we're going to do today. So I'm just telling you that in advance. And some of you are looking at me and go, I don't hike. So pass me with that metaphor. Nevertheless, let's patiently approach this text, but most importantly, let's approach it with some reverence and praying and asking God's help, both for me and for us as we sit under it. Let's pray. Gracious God, we approach your word today with uh, humility and reverence, asking that you would send your spirit upon us that we might be illuminated, illuminated to understand, illuminated to obey, to hear rightly and receive the truth of what you've given to us here. Lord, we thank you that all Scripture is given for our profit, for our correction, for our training in righteousness. And so, Lord, train us in righteousness today that we might be your faithful people. And so give us ears to hear and a heart to receive, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the Word of God, Colossians 2. I'm going to pick up context at verse 8 and read through verse 12. This is the Word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may he write its truth in our hearts today. Yes, keep your Bible open, and we're going to be flipping back a couple places in the Old Testament, so just be prepared uh, to do that by having the Bible there in front of you. Now, uh, as I already told you, uh, commentators uh, disagree about how this passage is to be interpreted, but what they don't disagree about is that this is a complicated uh, series of verses. This is very challenging uh, vocabulary that Paul is using. He is saying a lot in a very short span. So, this is going to be a buckle your seatbelts, embrace yourselves type of sermon. So, just hang on. And what we're going to do, hopefully to make that clear, is we're going to break down this text in just two ways. But the the first way is going to be the bulk of our heavy lifting today. But the two ways that we're going to break this down, we're going to ask the question, what is true in this text? What is true? And then secondly, what to do? Very clearly, what is true and then what to do. But it will take us some labor to clarify what is true here, but that's where we're headed. So let's let's dive right into this. Notice how Paul is transitioning away from talking about the whole fullness of deity who dwells bodily, but now he is talking to the Colossian Christians. Remember, the city of Colossae is a region which was a small city, mostly agrarian, used to be a booming economic center. The years have passed. It has dwindled in significance. The congregation of the church at Colossae is relatively small and relatively young and Paul is concerned for them to not be caught up in error but rather stay on the narrow path of Jesus not only with the way they live their lives but also with the things that they receive intellectually and believe by way of conviction so not just the way that they live but the truth that they believe in their hearts Paul is concerned for them so when he writes to them in verse 11 In Him, talking about Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Let me give you just some of the context as to why he's even saying this. The Colossian church was largely a Gentile church. So in the first century, people were divided up as to Jew or Gentile and sometimes barbarian if far out. Those were just the cultural categories. You were either Jewish or not Jewish, and if you were not Jewish, you were a Gentile or a barbarian. But The Colossian church is primarily Gentile, meaning they didn't grow up Jewish, they're not Jewish, they're not familiar with the things of Judaism, and oftentimes Gentile Christians would be mocked by Jewish Christians by being called the uncircumcised in a pejorative sense as an insult. You're not Jewish. You're not of pure Jewish blood. You're a Gentile. You're not from the lineage of Abraham. And so there would be oftentimes discord and disunity in the New Testament churches as Jew and Gentile have to find a way to get on with each other with the Jewish folks oftentimes looking at the Gentiles and saying, you guys are the unclean ones after all because we are Jewish. So that is some of the context here. And Paul is saying to this Fundamentally, Gentile church, you're not Jewish, but, verse 11, you are circumcised. Now, this is very important. And the reason why it's important is because some of the division that's taking place in Colossae by way of false teaching is those who were coming into the church and saying, if you're not Jewish, you can't actually be a Christian. You must be Jewish 
to be a Christian. And there was this movement across the first century in various places saying, in order to faithfully follow Jesus, you must become a Jew. And so they added being obedient to the Old Testament law as a requirement for the Christian believers, specifically circumcision, and it oftentimes uh, broke up the church into various factions through this false teaching to say, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to follow the Old Testament law. Paul engages that in various places at different levels of intensity, but here at Colossae, he engages it in this particular way. First of all, He agrees with the false teachers. Paul is going to agree with the false teachers here, but not in the way they would expect or like him to do. He comes to the Gentile Christians and he says to them, yes, you also are circumcised, but you're circumcised in this way. Notice the language in verse 11. A circumcision made without hands. Now, just on its surface, that's a head-scratcher of a phrase. What in the world is Paul talking about? Well, he's not talking about Jewish ritual circumcision. Circumcision made without hands is a reference to spiritual circumcision, a work of God upon the soul, a work of God upon the heart, an inward spiritual reality, because as it relates to the matter of external circumcision, the external sign of circumcision pointed to an inward spiritual reality. And so there is the physical sign on the outside, And there is the spiritual reality on the inside, and these things need to be held together, and Paul knows how to do that better than the false teachers. And he's trying to instruct the Colossian Christians, don't you be misled by this. Understand what this means. So Paul is laboring to help the Gentile Christian believers understand how Old Testament circumcision relates to New Testament baptism. There's a lot going on in these two verses. So what we're going to do is explain both what is true and what to do. But in order to do that, let me give you the conclusion right away so that as we walk through this, you'll you'll know where we're headed the whole time. Here's the conclusion. In other words, what is true, this is what's true. Circumcision, Old Testament circumcision, points forward... And New Testament baptism points backward, but they're both pointing to the same reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins, for our eternal life. That's the big picture as Paul is going to argue both from the Old Testament moving forward and the New Testament pointing backward to the same reality of Christ himself. I told you this is a buckle your seatbelt type of thing. Let's follow his argument because it is an intense one. So first of all, as it relates to what is true, it is that circumcision points forward. And as we think about that pointing forward, come backward with me in the book of Genesis. Keep your finger in Colossians 2, but let's go backwards into the book of Genesis in chapter 17. Do follow along with me so that we can follow what Paul is saying in Colossians 2 as he establishes it elsewhere in the scriptures. In Genesis 17, God gives to Abraham an instruction of a promise. God instructed Abraham to apply a physical picture called circumcision to all of his male descendants as a visible sign of his covenant promise to be God to them and to their children. 
So we must kind of, kind of vacate our 21st century understanding of this and go back into the world of the Old Testament to understand that circumcision was God's sign of a promise. Genesis 17, look with me at verse 10. Genesis 17, verse 10 says this. God says to Abraham, Genesis 17, verse 10, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and, pointedly here, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money or from any foreigner who is not your offspring, but he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the sign of circumcision was a sign of belonging to the Old Testament church, the covenant community, the family of Abraham. God says, Abraham, Abraham, do this and perpetuate it among the generations of the males of your household. It was a physical indication that this person was marked as the gracious recipient of God's covenant blessings and promises. Circumcision was the sign of the promise, I am your God, you are my people. But it's important to understand that it was never enough to just receive the external outward sign. The external outward visible sign correlated to an inward spiritual reality that must be joined together. Stay in the Old Testament, but let's go forward into the book of Deuteronomy. So skip forward. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Come with me to Deuteronomy 10, and we will see how this plays itself out. The outward sign of circumcision of the flesh was to be a picture of inward spiritual change, a changed heart, a life that responds to God's covenant promises with faith and repentance. Circumcision was the external reality, but the internal reality was, to use the words of Deuteronomy, a circumcised heart. So Deuteronomy chapter 10 at verse 12 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Skip down to verse 16. Verse 16 Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and no longer be stubborn. In other words, Moses is telling Israel, don't just receive the promise of God outwardly, receive it inwardly by way of faith, by way of loving trust in God. Physical circumcision relates to spiritual circumcision, which is the grace that causes us to live and truly love the Lord. It's not just what you do outwardly. The inward disposition matters as well. And we know this because Paul explains it in Romans 2.29 that a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit and not just by the letter. So let's come back into the world of Colossians now in Colossians 2. And let me unpack as to why this is significant and why Paul labors to this point. Here's why this matters. 
the same visible act of circumcision was a sign that would bless you if you respond to it in faith and receive it and be circumcised in your heart and receive God through faith and trust, the same sign that would bless you was also a sign that would curse you if you disobeyed. There are many illustrations of this. Males in the Old Testament who forsake the God of the covenant and rather than being blessed, they are cursed. The curse assumed, and follow the the visible picture of this without being too graphic, the curse assumed is that they would be cut off from the people of God. That's why there was a severing of the flesh. So to indicate a severing from the covenant community if you forsake the God of the covenant. You would be cut off, removed from the people of God. So the cutting of the flesh reminded them that you will likewise be cut off if you forsake the God of the covenant. And as we come back to Colossians, these first century false teachers who have been saying to the Colossian Christians, if you really want to follow Jesus, you have to be externally circumcised. And this is where Paul's mastery of the Old Testament becomes so evident. He agrees with them. And he says, you know what, you're right. You have to be circumcised. But in agreeing with them, he actually shows how those false teachers don't understand the very thing that they're talking about. They don't understand what circumcision was actually about in the first place. That's why he says to them in verse 11, Colossians 2, 11, In Him, in Jesus Christ, Gentile Christians, you were circumcised. And follow what he's saying. They are not outwardly, physically circumcised, but he says, yes, you are spiritually and inwardly. You do not need to be externally if you're going to faithfully follow Jesus because that's the circumcision that matters. And so Colossian Christians, Colossian believers, you have already been circumcised. Not with the external physical act of circumcision, no. You Colossian believers have received the inner spiritual reality that the outward sign was always intended to point to, namely faith and repentance of heart toward God. That's why yours is a circumcision, he said, made without hands. So to call it a circumcision made without hands is to say that it is the greater reality that the external circumcision pointed to in the first place. True circumcision of heart, that you have that in Jesus Christ when you trust in Him. You, Colossian believers, you have the inner spiritual reality right now. Your hearts have been circumcised. You have died to the old life. You are alive to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And how is that true? Still in verse 11, Paul says, By putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Now pause. If you can believe it, we're just now getting to the controversial part. And you say, what was he on about, right? That's risk, okay? What Paul is saying is that this notion of putting off the body of flesh, and it may be that if you're looking at a translation that's different than the ESV, which is in the rack, you you may be looking at a different way of saying this, but the ESV does a really good job of explaining the original language here. Paul only uses this phrase, putting off the body of flesh, one other time in the entire New Testament. So it's a very unique phrase, and that's why people are so disagreed about what exactly it means, but the other time he uses it is in chapter 1 of Colossians. In Colossians 1, 22, speaking about the ministry of Jesus Christ as Savior, Paul says in Colossians 1, 22, that he has now, Jesus Christ has now, 
reconciled in his body of flesh. That's the same language from 2.11. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Christ's death is what reconciles. Christ's sacrifice for our sins is what reconciles by putting off the body of flesh. So, here is the point. And you say, thank you for arriving at the point. Here is the point. By His death, Jesus Christ was cut off. By His death, Jesus' skin was pierced and torn in such a way that Jesus Christ Himself assumes the curse of the sign of circumcision if we were to disobey. He assumes the curse and judgment of the covenant as if he were a covenant breaker because God's people were to love their Lord, their God, with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength, and they don't. So they are liable to the curses of the covenant, namely to be cut off. But if I'm cut off, then I have no hope of living. Someone has to be cut off in my stead, in my place. Paul says, that's what Christ has come to do. Paul is saying, when you trust in Jesus, when you respond to the gospel with repentance and faith, you have a new heart, a new life. You have circumcision made without hands by the work of the Spirit. You are united to Christ in such a way that when He died, it was the penalty of your sins that were upon Him. And you are forgiven by His crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. In Him, you receive the benefit of this, which is, he says, the circumcision of the cross, the circumcision of Christ. When you trust in Jesus Christ and respond in faith and loving obedience to Him and repentance and faith, you receive everything that the old covenant sign of circumcision was pointing forward to in Him. Paul says to these Gentiles, you have it of heart. Made without hands, it's yours. So, Old Testament circumcision points forward, and New Testament baptism points then backward. So follow me in what he's saying then in verse 12, because verse 12 is the New Testament looking backward to, to Christ. What circumcision was in the Old Testament, baptism now is in the New. A physical external sign pointing to an inward spiritual reality of God's promises received by way of faith and repentance and enjoyed by way of obedience. Paul connects them together in verse 12. He writes, In Him you were circumcised, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Christ is, in other words, buried in the curse and then raised to new life so that you who receive Christ by faith are likewise buried in death and raised to new life in Jesus. When Christ died, your sin died with Him. When Christ was raised, your new life in Him is established so that the gates of eternal life are swung open to you because your debt has been paid and your new life is guaranteed as He is emerging from the tomb in victory. So then, baptism is now the sign of the gospel promise which we must receive by faith. Just like circumcision pointed forward, baptism points backward and they're pointing to the same thing. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our new life in Him. 
So the question is often asked, if that's true, who should receive the sign of baptism? And Lord willing, we're going to unpack that next week in some detail, you know, because there are some people who say it's inappropriate that children receive the sign of baptism. We're going to tackle that next week. But here's the conclusion again. Circumcision points forward and baptism points backward to the same reality of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ for our new life in Him. That's what is true, Paul says. So, what are we going to do? And you say, well, I hope you stop is what I hope you're going to do, right? Uh, That's what is true. So what should we do? Well, Christian believer, you should be mindful of your baptism. Your baptism should not be some token that you stick in a memory box never to think about ever again. Your baptism is what daily calls you to the promises of the gospel, namely repentance and faith. If we think to ourselves, I am baptized, so I am safe, and I never have to consider my life, and I never have to take stock or take evaluation. I'm, I'm baptized. I'm good to go. I'm in the club. My name's on the roster, so whatever. I don't need to repent and believe in Jesus because I'm baptized. Well, to that, Paul would say, the exact same water, the exact same water, that blessed the Israelites with safe passageway fell upon the Egyptians in curse. So we should be saying to ourselves and to our baptized children and to our grandchildren, loved one, your baptism calls you to respond in repentance and faith to the God who loves you. You must respond in repentance and faith to the sign of God's promise As Paul says in verse 12, through faith in the powerful working of God. Because when faith is joined to the outward sign, it becomes the spiritual reality, namely the washing away of the forgiveness of our sins. So, when the external sign is connected to the inward reality, then it stands to bless you. And my great concern about this, both for us all corporately and for myself individually, for my own family, is that I am concerned that our status as baptized believers is not sufficiently a part of the consciousness of our life as a Christian. If you are baptized, you are an inheritor of the promises of God. Martin Luther used to wake up in the morning and look at himself and say, I am baptized. As a reminder to himself that he is daily called to live in repentance and faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, who calls him, who claims him, who says, you belong to me and follow me with your heart as I give you eternal life. Luther said, I am baptized. And several generations later, the Westminster divines, who we use their products as our confession of faith, they use this language of the Christian believer learning to do something that is really unique. They use this phrase, improving your baptism. If I were to say to you, how are you improving your baptism? You would look at me and go, what? You know, there you go, on about, no clue what you're talking about. Improving my, what was wrong with it in the first place that has to be improved, right? But the language of improving our baptism means daily, regularly reminding ourselves of the promises which are spoken to us. So there's a practice in the old Scottish church that I intend to bring back here. It used to be the case, and it may have been done like this in the past, but 
when parents would bring their children to be baptized, the minister would ask, what is the name given this child? And it requires the parents to speak verbally the name that they have given their child. So for the minister to then say, such name, I give you a new name. Child of God. You are who you are by right of your parents, but you are who you are now by right of being claimed by the God of the covenant who calls you his own. Child of the covenant. And as a result, we must learn to daily respond in repentance and faith to the promises of the gospel because we are the children of God marked as Christ's own forever. We must get this right because Christ is the point. He is the source of our hope. He is the source of the gospel. He is the source of our eternal life and blessing and joy. It is in Christ alone. And for as much as we must understand and improve our baptism, we must also understand, as I believe Paul is directing these Colossian Christians, that ultimately your hope is not in your external baptism. Your hope is not in your church membership. Your hope is not in anything merited or accomplished by you. What is your hope? Listen to this. I came across this illustration. I thought it was so helpful. Off the northwestern coast of Scotland, on, there's a chain of islands called the, the, the Hebrides Islands, the Outer Hebrides. On New Year's Day, 1918, the greatest maritime disaster occurred since the sinking of the Titanic. It was a ship called the Lolaire. The Lolaire was bringing home World War I soldiers back to their hometown at the end of the Great War. The ship was about a mile offshore, off the coast of the port of Storaway, and the Lillaire ran aground on rocks and sank a mile offshore. The lights of the port city would have been visible in the night. Of the 283 passengers, 205 drowned. They made it through the war. They were a mile from safe port, and they drowned. It's graphic illustration to be sure, but do you understand the point they were on a boat headed for home and they thought they were safe, but they were not safe. Loved ones, trusting in your baptism externally only, trusting in your church membership externally only, trusting in the good name of your family or the reputation of your own personal righteousness or your own morality is like cruising a ship that's bound to sink, giving you the confidence that you're headed for home, but you are actually not. Paul says you are circumcised and baptized of Christ not only externally but of the heart. The only safe harbor is Jesus Christ himself and receiving him as he has offered to you in the gospel because in him we die and in him we are raised to new life. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We pray now that your spirit might rest upon us, that we might uh, both receive and have applied to our hearts the confidence that is in Christ alone. And so bless us, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.